production of Radio Six International. It's August. Welcome to Edinburgh. I'm Ewan Spence with From the Fringe. Coming to you from Radio Six International and the Podcast Corner. This is the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, the largest art show on the planet. And for the next month, I'm going to take you through with some exclusive interviews, music, and a look behind the scenes at this wonderful, wonderful experience. Lots going on. You can keep up to date at our website, edinburghfringe.thepodcastcorner.com. We will have links to all the shows that we mention here on the radio podcast multimedia extravaganza and of course you can always search edfringe.com which is the official website where you can go straight into the ticket office book all your tickets and head out to see the show remember if you like us hit all the like buttons if you love us do hit all the shares and the social media buttons that populate the world just now Starting off in our first show, uh, of which we're going to have four throughout the month from the arts capital of the world, we're going to have music from the Sorries and Camille O'Sullivan. We're going to have guests including Joe Blake from Belorieth, Milo McCabe from Tiles of the Unexpected, Ian Dale from his All Talk show. But we are going to start off the hour with a chat with stand-up Esther Manito. Yeah, don't come expecting some kind of Shakespearean improv. It's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, I was going to do an actual formal start to the interview, but that's it right there. Is it comedy or theatre? As the Benito oh, joins yeah. me now in the crusade, look at that. We're just going to take a run up and pretend yeah. it's not started start. Um, it's not comedy. It's not theatre. It's comedy. It but it's, comedy. it's hitting a subject that's very, very rich in content. It is rich in content, but I think if you don't laugh at these things or at least be able... I think sometimes discussion uh, is probably best done through a comedic element. I think it's good to really laugh at the absurdity sometimes of just being able to step back and go, oh my goodness, isn't this insane? Because we're living in particularly tense times and the divide politically between groups are just spreading and spreading and we're seeing, you know, the rise of every single side and... And I think people are getting very, very tense about it. So to take a step back. Welcome back. to Scotland. Hello. <laughs> I know, or Northern Ireland or anything. Let's, <laughs> let's be fair. There, there, there is tension all over. So it's called Crusade. It is called Crusade. It's the obvious Crusade. Uh, no. It's, it's not. not. Right the then. Option. So it's why the third Indiana Jones film wasn't the best Indiana Jones <laughs> film. Then. Well, let's let's not take Indiana Jones as reference for anything uh historical no. uh, or geographical um, no it, well it's essentially looking at the word crusade and what the crusade was and it was just that idea of trying to ram down other people's throats your own ideology of what it is to be civilised and what it is to be essentially proper um, and it's taking the concept of what that crusade is and whether you come to the show and feel that I'm fighting a crusade or whether you feel like I'm a victim of a crusade that's totally up to your interpretation what is it in the show that means that people have to consider those choices because um i think for a lot of people who are dual nationality 
uh, second generation immigrants, I feel like people want to put you into a bracket or a box. And I cover it across three different forms of identity, being a parent, being Arab and being British and very much feeling that I am all of those things. But it's a reaction to the amount of commentary that I've had, especially since doing stand up, of how I don't fit into those categories or how I should change to fit into those categories or how other people should change to fit into those categories. And it's just a reaction to no, you can't constantly have to define or defend your identity or reject it um, in order to fit in and I think it's something that's really common with a lot of people who have children um, and that's a big life-changing you know event in your own identity and how you're perceived but also I think if you come from two different backgrounds family pressure fashion pressure image pressure all these things religion they all start to press down and you find yourself either kind of flitting between the two or defending or trying to define and it's just a reaction to that because I feel that that's the same crusade idea of we're just going to shove this until you just accept that it is what it is and it's like actually no I don't want to so I, I let the audience kind of make their own decision as to whether I'm fighting back against that or whether I'm the one who's coming on stage and going this is what I am and whether they are taking that as me enforcing my own identity so when did you start on the stand-up three years ago three years ago and I love this because you, you you've been uh, nominated for new comedy four for years four years now so literally I started doing comedy and within four weeks I was nom- I was a BBC nom- nominee which sounds really really braggy but I've never got any further so it's <laughs> But every year you're still new. <laughs> every year I'm still new, so you can do it for five years. You can you can apply. So you got one more to go. Oh, I don't know if I've got it. Has, has anybody ever done all five? I don't know, you know. But I always keep it a bit on the down low because as soon as the nominations come out, people are yeah. like, "Oh, well, they were in there last year. They shouldn't be in there again." So I'm like, the fact that I've got three, four years in a row, I'm just like, <laughs> okay, right. So we'll we talk about the Edinburgh show then. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the Edinburgh show. Where? When did you decide to coalesce? the crusade into the hour is it so, something that's been slowly building up yeah time? i've been working on this show for about two years i did it last year not at edinburgh but i did it at smaller festivals like brighton and bath and i just did a, a shorter version and I, I just started to get because i started to get these comments online i started to get these comments after i came off stage and it was always just this quizzing about how you know how can you be doing stand-up when your kids are so young or and i or how can you be doing stand-up, you know, when you're talking about being Arab and you don't cover your head? Or how can you... And it was just constant commentary. And I was like, I have to start talking about this. This is incredible. Um, because I'd never been on stage before. I wasn't a performer. I didn't come from a performance background. I was on maternity leave. I had a seven-month-old and a two-year-old. And I just went a little bit insane in my own head and was like, I, I need to do something quite drastic to shake things up a little bit. So I started doing stand-up on the open mic circuit. And um, as soon as I started doing stand-up and I realised I actually really enjoyed it, just the floods of comments coming through of people, because it was a big shock, because it's not like I'd done, you know, drama What were you working as before? I was a teacher. Um, And I think people were just like, what? What are you doing? Like family and friends? They were just like, what's going on? Who's with the children? How do your husband feel about this? And you know he's very good to stand by you while you do this and it was just all these comments that I was I was like oh none of my male comedic peers who have children seem to be getting this kind of questioning or people you know women who had children but 
um, had come from a more media or entertainment background, people were a lot more used to it. So definitely there was a shock factor of me going into it. And then there was that unusual thing of me going on stage and talking about being Arab and not mentioning the buzzwords, not going on stage and going, oh, don't worry, I've got my rucksack with me or doing any of the kind of cliche jokes. So you found that people were a little bit, she's just standing on stage and talking about her family as if it's normal. <laughs> Um, and that, and then I, I realised, I was like, P- I, I realised that standing on stage and saying Arab was still a very scary word to people. And I like the fact that I was talking about my Arab family and people were coming up to me and saying things like, I didn't know, I'd never seen an Arab before. And you just look normal. Um, and these comments were just coming through thick and fast. And I was like, all I can take away from that is you can get offended, but what you can take away from that is that I'm leaving these venues and those people are going home going, I never thought that, I'd never associate Arab and that woman in the same category. In my mind, it's just people in the desert who are oppressive and, and aggressive and scary. Yeah, there's the Hollywood the image other. that seems to be passed over, yeah. but then there's everything yeah. else. But then also I'm British. I'm very, very proud, very, very proud of being British. So then I get it from the other side of Arab people going, well, how can you talk so much about your British side? You know, you, is it appropriate to talk the way you do? Is it appropriate for you to be a woman on stage? Is it appropriate for you to do this? Or how does your father feel about you? For the record, I believe the answer to all of those is <laughs> yes, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be, it would be, it would be people coming up, you know, not women, not Arab women, I've got to say, but a lot of Arab guys would come up and say things like, how does your father feel? How does your husband feel? Um, and I was just like, wow. Is, is that because of the this, this sort of ingrained culture that there is from those societies? Um, yeah, yeah, I d- there is not, I mean, in, I, I know that in New York there is a big Arab comedy circuit and there is women very, um, who are very forthcoming on that, but in Britain it's just still not a big thing, it's still not a big thing to have an Arab female comedian talking about her Arab heritage. You will have women who are of Arab descent and they may not talk about it or they may not, um, feel that it's something which dominates their, their personality or their lives. But for me, it does because I spent my entire childhood in the Middle East. I lived in the Middle East, you know, I'm my, I'm very close to my father. You know, it's a big part of my life. It's not something which, um, I would think, oh, this is a decision I've made to take this on board. I'm literally just talking about my family. I'm not fabricating. I'm not trying to take on part of my identity. I'm not try, trying, you know, I could, you know, say things like, you know, as a Muslim, but I'm not. I'm not religious. Um, used to be religious, but I'm not religious anymore. Um, I don't dress in a particularly conservative way as a Muslim woman. I'm literally just talking about what I am. And now you bring the show to Edinburgh. And now I'm bringing the show to Edinburgh. Yeah, definitely. Easy decision? Financially, no. <laughs> I wasn't um, going to bring that bit up. <laughs> we can talk about anything you like, but let's not mention the money. Uh, yeah, I am without a liver now after selling it. Um, no, easy decision. I think it's quite terrifying to put yourself out there because it's such a personal show. It's such a personal show, and that it, and I've I tried to make sure that I previewed it as as much as possible to not just in London to kind of liberal. Uh, audiences I wanted to preview it as much as possible all over the place so that I was getting different reactions and and seeing those reactions and dealing with those reactions so that it it became a show just about talking about family life and and comments that are made to me personally that I'm not making this stand or not making this um, political statement literally just observations and being able to get those reactions and I saw it from different audiences you'd start talking and audiences I went to a very 
pro-Brexit town and you could see there was just this awkwardness and this uncomfortableness but it was lovely towards the end of just seeing the audiences relax because I'm just talking about <sighs> my kids do my head in or my husband won't wipe a surface after making toast and it's these things you know that or you know my dad's driving me mad because he comes around and tries and puts together flat back furniture and he doesn't he's, he's mispronouncing things and he's doing it on purpose to wind me up and you can see the audience go oh yeah no I can relate to that you know I can relate to that and they're starting to just see the family dynamics very similar to their own so that's been really lovely actually I mean don't get me wrong I've had some horrible reactions you know which I talk about in the show but on the whole people people are you know good people I'm going to keep it quite happy and light here. So if you want to hear about the horrible dragons, <laughs> we're going to have to find out where the show is. So uh, where where is the show? At Gilded Balloon in the turret. True. So it's and at Teviot at four o'clock. And what happens after the Fringe? I've just been shortlisted for an award, which is lovely, um, for the from the Arab British Centre for Contribution Towards Culture. That's the finalist is announced in um, September. If that goes through, then hopefully I should be working on comedy projects in the Middle East as well. So it'd be amazing. And people can find you online where? They can find me at my um, Twitter is at Estimanito, uh, Instagram at Estimanito, um, and then my website, which is www.estimanito.com. There we go. Esther, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. From Esther Benito to a musical break here with Fringe Institution, the stories playing the Quaker Meeting House 4.30pm right through until the end of the Fringe, but do check those dates on the main website. And yes, you can tell by the name, the stories are a tribute to the legendary Corries. Here they are, Barrett's Privateers. Well, the year was 1778, how I wish I was in Edinburgh now. When a letter old Mark was sent frae the king to the scummiest vessel I'd ever seen, God damn them all. I was told we'd sail the seas for American gold, we'd fire no guns, shed no tears. Now I'm a broken man on the Halifax Pier, the last to bar its privateer. Who's else it but it cried the town How I wish I was in Edinburgh now For twenty men of fishermen Who would make for him The antelope's crew got damn them all I was told we'd sail the seas For American gold we'd fire no guns Shed no tears I'm a broken man on the Halifax Pier The last to bar its privateers Well, the antelope sloop was a sickening sight I wish I was in Edinburgh now She listed the port where sails and rags And the cook and the scuppers with the staggers and jags Got damn them all I was told we'd sail the seas for American gold We'd fire no guns, shed no tears I'm a broken man on the Halifax Pier The last to bar its privateer on the king's birthday we sailed away How I wish I was in Edinburgh now When a great big Yankee hove inside And we are cracked four pounders We began to fight God damn them all I was told we'd sail the seas For American gold we'd fire no guns Shed no tears I'm a broken man on the Halifax Pier The last to bar its privateer 
Well, the antelope shook and she pitched on her side. How I wish I wasn't in Bernal. And Barrett was smashed like a bowl of eggs. And the mainstay took away both my legs. Got down them all. I was told we'd sail the seas for American gold. We'd fire no guns, shed no tears. I'm a broken man on the Halifax pier. The last of Barrett's privateers. So here I lie in my twentieth year How I wish I was in Edinburgh now It's six years since we sailed away And I just made Halifax yesterday Got damn them all I was told we'd sail the seas for American gold We'd fire no guns, shed no tears now I'm a broken man on the Halifax Pier, the last to bad its privateer. The stories there, and you find links to their shows back at our website, edinburghfringe.thepodcastcorner.com, and tickets in the booking office at edfringe.com. Now, back-to-back interviews. In a moment, we have Joe Blake from Bloodyth, but first, Australian character comic Milo McKay. <laughs> Joining me now, a man who's going to have to put up with people doing the dancing, wavy, far things because of the bad pun of the show. Milo McCabe joins me now. How you doing? Milo, who came up with that pun? Oh, I came up with it. Yeah. Tiles of the Unexpected. Tiles of the Unexpected. Well, it's, it is a pun, but it's also a perfect name for a Scrabble-based numerological conspiracy theory show. I think Ooh. you'll agree. Lovely. So, I mean, <laughs> you've given me so many keywords to work with yeah, as an interview there. Um, let, let's start with the bit you didn't mention. It's not Milo on stage. No, it's no. Troy Hawk. <coughs> yeah, Troy Hawk. With an E at the end. So, yes. it's like the guy from Airwolf in the 1980s. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I play a character called Troy Hawk. Um, Troy is a 1930s throwback homeschooled sort of typical gent in the mold of David Niven was the big influence for me. But then I picked up a little bit of Ronald Coleman and uh, Errol Flynn and people of that ilk, people of that, that sort, sort of, of suave, debonair, suave, slightly camp debonair yeah. thing. That, yeah. Terry, is it as roguish as Terry Thomas or a bit um, more le- Leslie people Phillips? Have said, people have said all of these people to me, so I don't know. So it's just a, it's just like, a nice big I, fat era. Yeah, I haven't like, the, the real influence for me was David Niven and, okay. and everyone else. Sort of. So if there was to be a film version, you'd have David uh-huh. Niven playing you playing Troy. I mean, if this was a historical based question where we had space-time continuum. Of course, of course it is. It's really yeah. magic of radio. Uh-huh. Yeah. David Niven, right then. Okay, right. Now now we've got lovely picture and mm. we've got Scrabble in there as well. Now, is that because you like Scrabble or because you just decided that, that, that was a good hook? is or? because um, I've somehow developed the ability to know what any word is worth in Scrabble within about three or four seconds. That's a one anywhere on the board or just with the points value? No, I mean like any word. See, this is the thing. I use the numerical rules of Scrabble, but yeah. I'm not playing Scrabble. All so right, people okay. say, oh, you can't have buzz because there's two Zs. Well, you couldn't if you were playing Scrabble. Well, you could because you could have a, one of the yeah. blank tiles being exactly, one of the Zs. Yes, exactly, but then that would affect the value. But all we're dealing with here 
is numerology as far as Troy's concerned. So it's causal relations of numerology and what the, t- what the words are worth and how that relates to different things and coincidences and, and which, correlations. Which, and so which Scrabble set are you using? Because the French Scrabble has different points to the British Scrabble set. Oh, I'm not using French Scrabble. <laughs> a ridiculous question. It's a very sweet Honestly, it's question. It's a very sweet question. Yeah, because it's numerology. Oh. And, you know, the, the J is worth how much in... Eight. And it's worth, I think it's worth a bit less in French Scrabble. Yeah. yeah. I might be making this up. I'm I not had sure. I issues off of any French people. Seeing that the numbers values. were wrong. The, the, one of my, my favourite parts of any show is when somebody challenges me on a Scrabble score and literally 10 times out of 10, uh, it is always the case, I'll turn around and I'll say, you were thinking of words with friends, weren't you? Let's be honest. And, and they <laughs> always are. They always are. The, I am wrong. Is there a little bit of you that just goes, tick that off the mark? Oh, it's Got a lovely one. moment. It's, do you know, you so few times where you can be justifiably smug. <laughs> but like, you know but it's I mean? also at that point you know that the audience is engaged and they're yeah, walking along yeah, with they're you. they're listening. They're checking, which is good because I'm not making any of it up. People think I'm making it up, but I'm not making any of it up. So set the scene. If you were to, you know, give us the sort of scene setting for the story that you're going through here. Okay. So the story that I'm going through with Troy Hawk in this show is Troy has been homeschooled. His mother had this idea that basically she didn't want to let him out into the world till she painted the perfect picture. So it gets to the point where finally he's been out for a couple of years, but now he's going to move out of home. So he's facing a next step. He's facing a landmark moment. He's about to move out. The hawk's about to flee the nest. And... It's that's that's where the show sort of starts to kick off with what he encounters uh, everyday things that people take for granted that he has a very different angle on. And he's either never come across before or his mother has taken a different viewpoint yeah, on. Yeah, them. yeah. Well, it's just normal everyday things like I mean, in previous Troy shows, I've tied Aldi to the Illuminati with about eight strands of proof and Princess Diana's murder. Um, I've exposed Poundland's false Marxist paradise ideal. And what else have I done? I've, I've analysed football. I've, I've taken Troy into a Weatherspoons. Um, I'm, and this one is based around Ikea. So, so I, I, I don't really want to go... That's into, as far as you want to go but, now. Yep. But I got genuinely enough proof if you like for it to be an actual profanity conspiracy theory i got so many causal links i had to look very hard am i allowed to say that by the way are you are you writing down I, I, no i'm, I'm literally noting down the time code i was trying not to disturb the flow of the conversation oh, yeah. so i'm not allowed to say anything <laughs> no, no not like that words. no right. no but now we have actually have called it out the flow of the show is now not the flow of the show well the thing is you're going to have to listen now to find out if i beeped it or i put in another oh, it's, squirrely it's your, word or I mean, yeah it's editorial decision yeah it's so. probably going to be a beep i mean you could record the sound now and then i could edit it and put it back in earlier and that would do the whole right. causal thing right, as well so let's just record the sensor sound now you heard earlier profanity perfect perfect i mean i still have to write down another time code now um for for the that there but uh well so it'll, it'll actually come out like troy's heckling me yeah yeah 
Yeah, so but I then but then he's recorded his anyway. heckle after he's done the heckle. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, timey-wimey. There mm. we go. There, there's a conspiracy. And somebody will spin that in 10, 15 decades' time when they find the audio file and of conspiracy course. for that as well and everything. Down in uh, your audience in Alaska. So, Edinburgh. Yeah. How do you find Edinburgh? Yeah, man. I mean, I've, I've done, like, Troy shows here the last four years on a bounce. So, uh, I, I mean, I love it. It's very exciting. There's a lot of energy in the air. I like I get a bit I get a bit groundhog day with it like I go to the gym every day I meditate every day I still go out and have a drink but I'm sensible with it I just I try and have my cake and eat it until the last like five days and then I just get mullered and the wheels come off is it is it, is it more fun when the wheels come off the show for yeah, of you of course it is and, and the show invariably irritatingly is better but you can't sustain that over like three and a half weeks yeah. you can't say well I'm just going to get mullered every night and then the fact that I'm slightly hungover means I don't have that extra energy to sort of overthink the show so it just comes out smoother. You can't really sustain that over three and a half weeks but you can have it in the last three or four days when you've done it 25 times. You know you know the show. You can just you really start going. You know where all yeah. the, the little bits are and you can but punch it, did, it up. Yeah, but I'm sort of with, with Edinburgh this year it's sort of up until a couple of years ago it's always been a means to an end but since I've started touring it's like it's a lot more edifying because it's like building a product that you know you're going to take out and, and tour around. So, you so know, what previously Edinburgh was sort of the, the end of a show, this is now the start of a yeah, show. Yeah, like, like a couple of years back, I'd make a show for Edinburgh and then it was dead. But now that I've sort of settled on one character and it's popular and I can tour it and I can sell out venues, then it's like, so now I'm, I'm not making a show that's just going to live and die in the month. I'm making a show that I'm then going to tour and take to other festivals and, and so on. And so that makes it um, a much more enjoyable process because I've done a lot of work on the show, but there's nothing that changes the show like that first week and a half in that room where you're in and the constant repetition. And, and you know, t- to be fair, though, it's probably something that would seem like a 25% difference to a performer. But if, if somebody saw a show day one and day 10, they'd probably barely notice anything, maybe like 5%. Yeah. But as, as a performer... You know feels, where those rough edges yeah, are. You're exactly, just like, I don't... Exactly. That feels a bit clunky. Yeah, right. And everybody else is going, you just breathe, it's, it's fine. fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just know, and it goes through. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Yeah. Do you get a chance to go on stage at the Fringe, not as Troy, but as Milo? Do you, well, do you no, get out and do the... No, in- no interest in that whatsoever. No? no? I started off doing that, but like, oddly, I feel like I could be more authentic in character. Like, it's I mean, yeah, it does feel like that. It feels like I was fine on stage as me as a comic, but I wasn't really doing anything that would make me laugh. I was just doing stuff that worked. And I think a, a lot of comics in the beginning, they do that. Some don't. Some are just naturally themselves and brilliant and off they go. But for me, it was needs must. So I just got a set that worked. That You know, if I was sitting in a club, I don't think at the time I would have particularly laughed at. And then over time, I've just realized this is what I enjoy doing. This is what I'm better at. And this is stuff that I'd laugh at myself, you know. So it's the character comedy as opposed to the it's pure stand-up? Well, the, no, I mean, it's, I do. Pure. I'm a full-time stand-up. Mm. So I do. I go around clubs, whatever, four or five nights a week doing this character. Yeah, that's what I mean by character comedy as opposed to stand-up it's comedy. Ca- I say yeah. you say character stand-up. Though. Yeah, it, it's not a theatrical character with the full no. script and everything. But it's the show, the show's got like it, it's more of a sort of comedy show. It's not an hour mm-hmm. stand-up. Milo, remind us where the show is on. So I'm on at five thirty um, every day, apart from the twelfth, at the Dexter Room Underbelly. Yeah, get in, buy yeah. your tickets. Yeah, pretty and much. I've just realised it's taken me the entire length of the interview to work out why it's tiles of the unexpected. Ah, oh, beautiful! At least you got it. Though. 
and welcome now to the show, Joe Blake, an easy name to pronounce, Joe, <laughs> and an object lesson in things you don't learn until you've done the fringe at least once. <laughs> what are you in? Uh, my show is called Bloodeth Untold. And how? And I read that as mm. Bloodwood. Bloodwood, yeah. Well, yeah, as yeah. you would. And, and for that, I blame Jeff Wayne and the musical version of The War of the Worlds. <laughs> And the thing is, it doesn't help that actually her name is pronounced in lots of different ways. So I say Bladeoth, but sometimes she's Bladeworth and sometimes she's Bladeoth. So, um, yeah, triple whammy. Yeah. <laughs> but at least the name's available on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. it is. So, yeah. <laughs> so Bladeoth. Yeah. Uh, Bladeoth Until. Tell us a little yeah. bit about the show. So the show is kind of a based on her myth. So she is a character from early Welsh mythology. Um, she crops up in this collection of uh, early texts called the Mabinogion, another mouthful. Um, and she's a kind of smallish character that comes in at the end of one of the very long, long myths. And there's four very long myths. And so she's, she's not a majorly central character. But um, this piece is basically looking at her character from now, from a contemporary perspective. It's, it's, it's reimagining her um, and and in a way, looking at what has happened to the myth and myth in general in our modern lives. So at some point she was written onto the page by Christian monks in the 14th century. And so it's looking at, well, who was she before she met the page? And, uh, and within that, looking at what has happened to our myths by being written in pages on books and also... Um, looking at the kind of the feminine and the lens of the old goddesses and and the the female characters um that have kind of gone through the machinery of the patriarchy basically over the last few centuries so if we go back as much as we can as mm. much as we can to the original text and we say mm. we i mean you because mm. you've done the research and i've no mm. idea what originally happened in the text of Bladeoth? Well, so in the original story, she's portrayed as a character who's created out of flowers. So there's a, there's a young man that has been cursed to never marry a woman born of the race of this earth. Um, and so two very powerful men uh, conjure a woman out of flowers, specifically to be his wife. But she's not very good at being his wife, and she falls for somebody else. Um, and she has an affair with somebody else, and then her punishment for that adultery is to be turned into an owl. Um, but when I look at Bladeoth, I actually see in her the remnants of uh, the kind of the great goddess figure. So she's this being that was flowers, who then became flesh, and who then became an animal. So she has these three incarnations. Um, and her role in the in the myth is really to bring chaos and unraveling and destruction so for me she has a kind of trickster type energy but she's never really portrayed as a trickster but i so i'm i sort of reimagine her as a as a trickster and as somebody who brings a very necessary death to the old structures and is a chaos bringer Basically. And straight away, I can see if you put a 21st century lens mm. on top of that, you can have so much fun as a storyteller yeah, with that. Absolutely. And that I just, you know, it's, it's really interesting that, that trickster characters in particular are nearly always portrayed as male. So in all world mythology, they're nearly always male figures. And which is a question for me. Why, why, where are the female tricksters? Um, and if you look at Bladeoth as a trickster, suddenly she makes so much sense. Um, 
And the the death she brings or the chaos she causes is that kind of generative chaos where things break down, but then once everything has broken down, something new and better emerges. So in, in a sense, it's an embodiment of narrative collapse. Yeah, yeah. So she causes a narrative collapse. Yeah, definitely. And... Um, and you know, and for me, that's really interesting because I feel like, in terms of the times we're living in now, there's all of this. Well, we've got the collapse. We've got the collapse going, <laughs> and actually, I think you know, and we've got this time where, weirdly, we've got these tricksters that are be kind of becoming kings. You know, we've got Trump and Boris, who are trickster type people. They have correct names. <laughs> it is Mr. Trump and Mr. Johnson. We're not going to okay. go with the little cozy. Oh, I'm going to rebrand myself. Oh, look at me. No. Yeah. But they, you know, but, but in yes, a way, they're, they're troublemakers. They're, tr- they're troublemakers, they're trickstering themselves, yeah. and then we've got the layers. And yeah. So, okay, when did you first encounter? So I first met her in 2011 um, through, yeah, going on a, a storytelling training course in Wales where we were visiting all the different landscapes associated with the mythology. And um, so I, that's where I met her on the pages of a book. Um, and then I started working with her and working with her story and I have this this thing you know as, as a contemporary storyteller that and it, and again if you speak to many storytellers they'll tell you the same thing which is that when you start working with a myth it starts working with you and uh, so there's there's you're only partially in control <laughs> and and uh, the myth somehow starts uh, manifesting or or you know you start to notice resonances of it and has there been a lot of representation of her in the past no. 15, 20 years, or is it? Yeah, I'm just trying to work it. You, you've mm. got the 14th century, and then you've mm. got now. It's like, how much interpretation has been done in the intervening mm. seven centuries? Yeah, not much. There's some artists that have done beautiful paintings of this woman made out of flowers. Um, uh, and there was uh, a woman, Evelyn. Oh, now I can't remember her name, but there was a woman, an American woman, who did a who did a, a series of books, kind of novels, based on her in the fifties. Um, uh, not based on her, sorry, but based on the Mabinogian. But she was she came out more centrally than she had done in other um, versions, but not huge amounts, you know. So does that give you the sense of I can do anything, or a sense of responsibility? Mm. Um, I think I always have a sense of responsibility when I'm working with mythology in a way um so one storyteller that i know says that if you move too far from the myth the ancestors give you a prod in the ribs like you've gone a bit too far so you have to have you know it's an intuitive thing it's okay i want to play with it i want to i want to open it up so it can meet a new audience now so that it resonates with a contemporary audience right now but at the same time I don't want to do it a disservice and I don't want to, and even though there's kind of humour in it and I might be critiquing it, I don't want to deconstruct it or parody it in any way. How does it feel when you get that nudge in the ribs as a writer? Mm. <laughs> and, and there are now people who aren't writers out there going, what do you mean you get a nudge in the rib when you write? She's like, you do. It's just like... Yeah. It's just, it's, it's a feeling of, am I using this myth? to get something across it's like you know really the myth for me has a life of its own so I work with the myth so I I might have something I want to say but it also has something that it wants to say so it's a constant uh, back and forth it's more like a dialogue or a conversation whereas if I take a myth and just kind of use it for my purpose my politics or 
um, you know, my, my axe to grind, then I feel like actually I'm breaking something which is slightly sacred. So my relation, you know, for, for me, myth has got a slightly sacred element to it. It's not, it's not just the same as any old story. It's got, it's had a life and it, and it will live beyond me as well. You know, there'll be 100, 200 years time, it will still exist and I won't. So I have to, so I'm working with it. But then your text becomes one of those texts of the myth mm. that people will just go, well, it went from there and then there was not mm. a lot and then there was a book in the 50s and then there was a mm. performance of it in the mm. 21st century and mm. so in another mm. four or 500 years, mm. do you... Do you ever just look up from the page and just go, I'm in a theatre in Edinburgh mm. with 60 or 70 odd people, mm. but this is going to go on for a long time. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. So there's this sense that whenever you tell a story like this, there's a, you know, a long line of people behind you that, are, that you know, they're standing there behind you who also told it, you know, way, way, way back, hundreds of years, but equally, there are those that stand in front of you as well. So I think as a storyteller, I'm very aware of that. Um, and also, just to say, I don't actually write. So my m none of this myth is written is written down for me. So the, the performance, um, there's bits, the kind of my autobiographical story that comes in. I actually wrote on the page, but um, two thirds of the performance has never been written on the page. It's orally crafted, and therefore it it changes slightly each time I do it. So. And for me, that's part of the art of storytelling, kind of the old art of storytelling, really. Yeah. But it's an art also that you're keeping alive as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I, I actually, um, I, I did my PhD in storytelling, and that was partly how uh, this piece developed as well, was kind of through researching, through practice. Um, but And then out of that, um, I've developed a course where I'm now teaching other people that want to engage with contemporary storytelling and really kind of explode the ideas of what a storyteller can be and should be and might be in the 21st century. So, um, you know, it doesn't just have to be the old man with grey hair sat by the fire. Not that there's anything wrong with that. In fact, that's very lovely. But actually, there's people from... Um, there's more diversity now in terms of the people that want to engage with storytelling. And... Um, you know, and really, really approaching the art of storytelling from from the kind of very fractured and broken place that we are now. So we don't have our traditions intact, a lot of us, you know, especially if you grew up on a house and estate on the edge of Northampton, like I did, you know, you didn't sit at, at your nan's knee hearing old stories. So you have to go to those stories. And like I've done with this, you have to unpick it, understand it and try and meet it from a place of authentic um, experience. Um, yeah. So, those people who are at the Fringe, where can they come and see the show? So they can see the show at the Baby Grand, um, which is part of the Pleasance, um, and it's on at three fifteen every day except for August the twelfth. And storytelling and everything else mm. that you do is online as well. It is, yes. Yeah. So I've got a website which is just www.joe-blake.co.uk. And um, I'm on Facebook as Joe Blake and Twitter is at JB Joe Blake. And that's Joe without an E. <laughs> there we go. Joe, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for coming on. Great to have you on the show. Thank you.
Joe Blake there and the show that, nope, I'm not going to give that one another go. Uh, you can find more details at edwardfringe.thepodcastcorner.com and the ticket office at edfringe.com. Another musical break now with another Fringe stalwart. Irish Sean Tooth Camille O'Sullivan this year brings her show. Camille O'Sullivan sings in Cave with the legendary singer-songwriter Nick Cave. But a little flashback of the music here to another of her influences, David Bowie and a blast of Suffragette City. Sullivan there details you know this by now edinburghfringe.thepodcastscorer.com tickets at edfringe.com uh, now a fringe debut but not a fringe podcast debut with Ian Day And now it's a welcome back to the Fringe Show for Ian Dale, but on the other side of the microphone now. It, former it co-host <laughs> turned presenter turned big name at the Fringe. Well, who'd have thought? Because I've been coming to the Fringe for three or four years now. And I suppose I've always thought oh, I'd really like to do this myself. And I got a new agent last year at North Bank. And I said, 
to them that I'd had this idea for a show. And they said, oh, we know James Seabright, one of the promoters at Edinburgh. So they introduced me to him, and here I am. I, I, I told him what I wanted to do, not thinking that he would really get it, but he absolutely did. And um, I gave him a list of 85 people I thought I could get. I'm not sure he believed me. And I had a guy come up to me in, uh, before we went on stage yesterday, brandishing the flyer at me. And he said, are all these people coming? I said, yeah, they're on the leaflet. Of course they're coming. What, you mean they're confirmed? I said, yes. What, it's the Sadiq Khan coming? You mean the Mayor of London? You're not another Sadiq Khan? I said, yeah. He said, well, how do you get all these people? I said, mate, it's what I do. It's my contacts book. <laughs> <laughs> Ian Dale joins us now. Known for LBC, known for podcasting. The last year has been... It's been a really weird year because, of course, last September I got Eddie Mayard and was moved from the drive time slot and relegated to the evening show. That, well, radio. that's how a lot of people saw it. But actually, it's given me a completely new lease of life in a sense because all of the political breaking news has happened in my show over the last year, all the parliamentary votes, all that sort of thing. And I've had an absolute riot. I've done much more writing than I've ever done before. I don't really enjoy writing, to be honest, but that's gone quite well. Been chairing the Tory hustings. That's given me a huge profile over the past couple of months. And here I am in Edinburgh and uh, got a new book deal as well. So, it, yeah, it's been quite a year. Ian Dale will talk. Let's talk about the Fringe Show yep. first. Uh, it's, it's you talking to one or two people of note from the political world each day yeah it's not that not just politicians I and mean, i've got quite an eclectic mix of people here um i mean we've got next week nicola sturgeon john mcdonald sadiq khan there but we've got some journalists as well like people like christian amanpour from cnn who is just an amazing journalist the, the one that stands out as not being from the well there are two not from the political world um paul gambaccini and of course christopher biggins this is all getting very incestuous with biggins because he's coming on my show i'm going on his i think the next day and we're doing um some sort of radio show together as well so i don't know whether this is a new double act dale and biggins that's being formed here is this a one-off i don't know is the honest answer to that um it, it partly depends how much i enjoy it by the end of it uh, sometimes i think it's a good idea to do it every other year giles does that he doesn't come here every year um i i think we we've got two shows at four o'clock and six o'clock so i'm doing 24 shows in 12 days which on reflection i wonder whether that was wise um maybe it would have just been better because jan raven's cancelled so we took over her slot at six o'clock but I think the way the Fringe website works, people don't realise it's different shows with different guests. So the tickets for the four o'clock one have gone really, really well. The six o'clock one, less so, because it's, it's much more difficult to market. But we're getting there. Yeah, and six o'clock is also kind of where the Fringe tips over from theatre and yeah. the interview base into the, the, yeah. the comedy and the cabaret. So... There's a lot to take away from that. Yeah, so I'd, look, I've, I've been coming for three, four, five years now as a punter. Um, I'd like to think I would do it again. But, I mean, it, you know what the economics of the Fringe is like. This is not a cheap show to put on. We don't pay the guests anything. I mean, they are doing me a favour, really. Um, and I think I could do a run next year with equal quality guests. But um, it's got to work financially. The reason it's worked this year is because I've got sponsorship. Now, if I hadn't got the sponsorship, it would have been very, well, it would have been touch close. and go. Yeah. Is it fun, though? It, if, I, if by the end of it, and I think this has been a bit of a slog, 
then I think I probably wouldn't do it again. So far, we, we've done four shows. I say we, I have done four shows so far, and I have enjoyed it. Um, and I think the audiences, I mean, it's preview, so the audience, you're never going to sell out a preview, but the audiences have, have got bigger, and I've had some really, really positive feedback from the people, and I've made sure that I've talked to people afterwards because I, I want to know if I'm getting the balance right between the light and the serious. I'm not giving anyone a battering. They're not here to get have a forensic political interview about policy. It's much more personal, and I want it to be a conversation. I don't go in with lists of questions. It, it, it has to be a natural conversation. You talk for a living. Yeah. You talk to a lot of these people for a living. Is this then a holiday? How, how, do you contra- how do you contrast this to the daily talk show that you do on the radio? It's a holiday in the sense that I don't really have to do a lot in the re- during the rest of the day. I can go and see other shows. I haven't done yet, but I'm going to do some today and tomorrow, and that's what I'm going to do most of next week. Um, so it, it's a busman's holiday, isn't it, in a sense? But I don't, I've never regarded it as work. And I mean, I'm very lucky. The whole career. Yeah, I'm very lucky in that the radio show, yes, it is a job, but I don't really, I've never really regarded it as a job because I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've been doing it for nine years now and I can't remember a time when I haven't enjoyed it. And I, I, that's when I'll stop, when I know that I'm not really enjoying it because, and the listeners will notice as well. So you can't fool people. If, if you try and pull the wool over people's eyes, they know you well enough because to them particularly the people that listen most days, you become a kind of friend to them, even though you've never met them. And they know when you're not on form or whether you're tired or emotional or or whatever, just as they would do with a a real friend. Yeah, I mean, somebody like Ian Lee, for example, when he goes through his moods and cycles, the amount of talk that he does. Yeah, that's pretty bleeding obvious with Ian, isn't it? It is, yeah. (laughs) But he's also got the audience that will, will... call in and yeah. help him through and then he'll help the audience it, back in different it is a two-way relationship I, I remember when my mum died and I mean when a parent dies that is a massive thing in anyone's life and I can remember doing a phone-in on grief a week after my mum died and thinking I must be mad to do this but I did it and you sort of take people along with you and and that's that's the unique thing about radio you can build up a relationship with the audience in a way that you can't in any other medium in television is somehow there's there's a barrier there with radio there isn't um and people do i'm astonished i can be walking down the street and someone will come up to me and they know so much about my life and i think well god how do they know that and sometimes i ask well how do you know that thinking that bit being a bit stalkery i said well you said it on the radio six months ago you've also got a wide range of podcasts going out there You've got For The Many podcasts as well, which, you know, if you like your British smut, is probably <laughs> the only political smut crossover out there. Are you recording these ones here at Edinburgh, the All Talk ones? Is there we any are. destination for those? Or is yep, that just in case is, somebody admits no, to something? there is going to be an Iandale All Talk podcast, which will launch later in August. And we're going to put all of the Edinburgh shows out one a week. So it'll go literally for six months. Um, I've had a lot of demand for it on, on Twitter. And, but I'm also doing some more similar shows at the uh, Fairfield Halls in Croydon. So I'm doing John Humphreys, Jenny Murray, um, Janet Street Porter, and then some more early next year. And I'll probably use it to put the big LBC interviews that I do, because at the moment, apart from putting them on the LBC website, there's no real podcast outlet for them. So it'll be a bit of a 
sort of mixture, but all all interview based. Um, so we've got that. I do cross question program as a podcast. My book club as a podcast. Um, but I think four is quite enough Ian Dale podcasts, <laughs> even for me. <laughs> is there a job you would trade all those podcasts for? Oh, my God. A job that... You see, people always say to me, oh, you must want to work for the BBC. And there probably was a time when I would have said yes to that question. Or I might not have answered the question, but in my head I would have thought yes. Um, my boss always jokes with me. I did an interview with the Paul Blanchard for the Media Masters podcast. And I said, it had always been my dream to be a presenter on Five Live. And he said, oh, so making a pitch for Five Live, are you? I said, no, look at the... It had been, not it is, it had been. Um, it no longer is, because I think, where could I do on British radio what I do now? I, I, I don't have a script. I don't want a script. I don't want a producer giving me a list of questions, because if I have a list of questions, the temptation will be to ask the first one, then ask the second one, then the third one. And it then it's not a conversation. It doesn't then. work. And it doesn't work. I don't think it does. And I think news presenters now have to really be very careful about how they approach interviews. Are they serving themselves? Are they serving the politicians? Are they serving the audience? And too often nowadays, it is about the interviewer rather than the audience. And I, I probably shouldn't say this, but when I watched the Scottish uh, Tory hustings, the, present, the guy that they got to do that, Colin, somebody from Scottish television, really aggressive and it was all about him he, he was trying to be a sort of sub paxman and you just don't need to do that you do not get anything out of somebody when you make them feel defensive they put the shutters up and they just mouth sound bites and it doesn't work um, so I don't want to ever be in a situation where I feel I have to do a particular form of interview because of the program I'm doing I have complete control over my program I can within limits do what I like I couldn't do that if I worked for the BBC and, and there's no I mean in Britain in Britain you're either with uh, global power in the radio industry or the BBC and yeah I'd love to I'd love to present any questions I mean I make no bones about that I haven't applied for it because I know I wouldn't get it so, well partly because I've been a panelist on it um, so I've got my own version of any questions cross question on LBC um, but you, al you also have to know yourself and know what you're good at and what you're not good at. And although I do a lot of television, um, uh, I, I know my limits. Let's, put, let's put it that LBC way. LBC 7 till 10, Monday through Thursday. All talk for the many, the book club. What else have we not done? It's um, all there. It's all there. <laughs> and I've just got a new book deal. Um, do, I'm writing a book called Why Can't We All Just Get Along about the decline in public discourse uh, which is published by HarperCollins next June so um, I haven't written a word yet so I'd better get on with that after Edinburgh's When's finished. the deadline? Uh, January Okay so that's December 27th to start writing? No I, I can, <laughs> I, Luckily I can write quickly and I, I do a few newspaper columns yeah. which and when I talk to other journalists they spend hours and hours and hours writing a column I find it's a bit like my interviewing style. My, my best columns are the ones that I dash off in half an hour, yeah. which I feel slightly guilty about, but there we are. It's all about the final product. Yeah. You don't need to see what goes on back of house. If the front of the house is fine, everything works. And probably the safest place is to say if everybody wants any details on anything is just go to your own website. Just go to, well, I've actually created a special website for this, iandaleallTalk.com. Ian's about the Scottish way. Yeah, and iandale.com yep. links to absolutely everything. Yep. 
Ian, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Ian Dale there from his old talk show, which of course you can find out more details at his website, back at our website, edinburghfringe.thepodcastcorner.com, and tickets booked and available through edfringe.com. Right, well, okay, everybody has descended on Edinburgh, but what do the residents think? It's time for a weekly thought from the fringe from Ross Middleton. that time of year again, the time when many local Edinburgh residents retreat from the city centre as thousands of creatives flood to their city. This is an attitude that has always saddened me, as the only way i found to put up with all the practical annoyances the festival can present is to embrace it wholeheartedly. After all, where else in the world do you get people coming to your city for a whole month with the intention of trying to entertain you? In my experience, this very first week running from the Wednesday to Thursday is the best time for a thrifty Scot to see as many shows as possible. With cheaper preview shows, the Assembly £5 ticket scheme for any EH postcode holders and the two-for-one days on the first Monday and Tuesday, there's so much to see at a reduced cost, saving all those precious pennies for the crucial £6 pints. I always try to see at least one or two mixed bill shows in the first few days. The fast fringe at the Pleasance Dome has always been my favourite. With 12 acts in an hour, you're bound to find at least one or two acts you'd like to see more of, if not even more. You never know, you might end up seeing someone who makes it big on the telly years down the line and pull the hipster move of, well, I knew them before they were famous. I'm not saying the fringe isn't without its flaws. Trying to traverse the Royal Mile is no mean feat. The only thing I can compare it to is when thousands of sport fans try to leave a stadium at the same time. Except rather than trying to flog flags and scarves, the people at the centre of this melee will attempt to sell their improv show or their breakdance interpretation of Romeo and Juliet. Yes, the city becomes exponentially busier, but it's also strewn with nooks and crannies in which you can take shelter from the rain, or the flyers, or in most cases both. To all those Edinburgh naysayers, get out and see a show or two. For everyone visiting the city, please be gentle. We're a delicate and grumpy old bunch. And to all you great performers, keep up the good work. You're doing a great job. It's going to be a fantastic month. Ross Middleton there with our first thought from Edinburgh. There'll be another one along next week. I'll be along next week as well with more interviews from the Edinburgh Festival Fins. Thanks to our artists who have appeared on the show today with music from the Sorries and Camille O'Sullivan and interviews from Esther Minido, Milo McCabe, Joe Blake and Ian Dell. You'll find more details at edinburghfringe.thepodcastcorner.com and if you want to keep listening to your music around the clock and around the world, a big thank you to the production team at Radio 6 International radio6.com for their support for the radio transmission back at the podcast corner for all the podcast support as well Uh, next week of course uh, we'll have had a whole bundle of reviews and stuff so we'll be able to bring back in our regular charts from the teams at Broadway Baby for the most reviewed and the most searched for coming from the team at Fringe Guru and the Wii Review as well do keep an eye out for that at our main website for now if you like us, hit the like buttons and everything on your Facebooks and your Twitters and everything. If you love us, do the sharing as well. I'm Ewan Spence. I'm going back out into Edinburgh. 
I'll tell you what I find next time. A production of Radio 6 International. Copyright 2019.